Is safeguarding adults a commercial concern? You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome back to Everyone's Business, a Safeguarding Podcast. I'm Ian Brownhill, barrister at 39 Essex Chambers and the sometime host of this podcast series. For those of you who don't know us, Everyone's Business is a Safeguarding Podcast, which explores interesting and unique perspectives in respect of safeguarding children and adults at risk. The series is part of 39 Essex's Public Law Podcast and features guests who can offer exceptional insight into the subject. We started this series last year with 10 episodes over summer. We talked about esports, safeguarding adults boards, and there was something for everybody beside. And now we're back in 2023, and we're back in particular for Safeguarding Adults Week. But I'm pleased to say it's not just me today, because I'm joined by Scarlett. Scarlett Milligan is a barrister at 39 Essex. Hello, Scarlett. Hi, Ian. Thank you for having me. And Scarlett has a very interesting, broad practice in respect to public law, civil liability, inquests and public inquiries. And in lots of those cases, she comes across issues in respect of safeguarding children, vulnerable adults, and those who are known by the state to be at risk of a physical or psychological harm. And in particular, interesting to me, especially as a coroner, I've just heard that she's been instructed in the Michaela Hall inquest. For those of you who don't know about that case, that was a lady who was tragically murdered by her partner who had been recently released on probation despite there being a documented history of domestic abuse. And that's a four-week inquest coming up soon. Is that right, Scarlett? Yes, precise timetable to be confirmed. So I will revert with the findings once we have them. Interesting. And one of those cases that we'll all be looking out for, I'm sure. Now, today, Scarlett and I are talking about safeguarding in a very specific context. And that's in respect of commercial things. And some of the things we're going to be talking about today are commercial organisations and how they've adapted to having a safeguarding duty. And one of the things we just want to talk about today is whether or not these commercial companies, businesses, whether they have a duty to safeguard adults at all, where it comes from, how it's developed over recent years. And we'll talk amongst ourselves about safeguarding procedures. We'll talk about how it is that a particular company might find themselves being liable in respect of a safeguarding issue. And we'll try and talk a little bit about some of the practicalities, in particular what happens when a company finds themselves on the receiving end of a statutory safeguarding inquiry. And as ever, just at the end of the podcast, we will talk together about what we think might happen in the future. Now, but before we get all started about that, Scarlett and I, when we were preparing today's episode, started to talk about and think about what lessons can we learn from the past? And in particular, in the commercial context, how it is that the concept of safeguarding has arisen in respect of companies and the business that they do on a day-to-day basis. One of the interesting things about safeguarding is how it's something which is expanding, not only in terms of the concept of safeguarding, but who it touches. And elsewhere in this week, you'll hear about safeguarding in different contexts, in respect of charities, in respect of sports, alongside those statutory safeguarding processes. But today, we're talking about business, about commerce, 
about people who are effectively going out to earn a living from something. And one of the best examples of how safeguarding has started to touch the commercial world is what's going on in the press and what you may have seen quite recently. I'm not sure if you saw it, Scarlett, but did you see the coverage in respect of the tea growers and how tea planters and how staff on those plantations were treated? Absolutely, Ian. There were some horrendous reports of what the people on on the ground um, were facing. And I think we should probably maybe just take care not to mention any specific tea companies involved. (laughs) Uh, As I know, not all of the allegations were accepted. That's true. But yes, certainly. And I I think that this is an issue that many companies really need to be alive to. What is actually happening on the ground and in the supply chains that they have adopted or are part of? So for those of you who didn't see it, and again, as we say, we're not mentioning any particular companies here, but there has been something of a worldwide issue in respect of the way in which parts of the tea industry treat their staff. And in particular, when you sit down to your cuppa in the morning or at the end of the day, how it is that the tea goes from the plantation into the tea bag and eventually finds its way to your breakfast table or whatever. Now, in this case, what we've learned is that effectively there has been, on some plantations, systemic issues. And the systemic issues start from recruitment. These jobs on tea plantations are something which are wanted by people who work in those communities. They're something that's valued, not only economically, but in terms of the stability that jobs with those large corporations are able to offer. But... They are locally run, and those local run systems, which eventually generate the tea, which eventually finds its way into our mugs, has been something of a problem. And in particular, what the investigations have shown is that some people have been taken advantage of, in particular, not only in the recruitment processes, but when they get there, when they start working on those plantations. In the recruitment processes, there have been examples of things like bribery, But also, in addition to that, the suggestion that if somebody is able to make themselves available sexually to their employer, that they will find themselves a job. That's clearly exploitative. Then, when the staff find themselves working on the plantation, they're expected to work in a certain way or else they potentially will lose their job. That's sometimes linked to production, but also it was linked to effectively, again, offering sexual activity to those people who were overseeing the work and overseeing the production system. So throughout the tea industry, what has developed, both in terms of recruitment and indeed also in the way in which production has taken place, is a risk of sexual exploitation. Now, once that was exposed, the companies have reacted to it. So safeguarding processes have been put in place. And in addition to that, there has also been a greater focus on welfare, including the deployment of safeguarding personnel, if you like. People who are specifically employed to look after the well-being of the workforce. And that's something which can only be a positive. But something so mundane as a cup of tea really shows how safeguarding is a commercial concern. Now, Scarlett has been doing a bit of digging to try and find out to what extent companies have started to establish 
their own safeguarding procedures. Outside of the tea industry, the other industries are available. Scarlett, what have you found in respect of that? So when we think about safeguarding, sometimes the focus is too narrow. People think about those who are in the receipt of care from, for example, a local authority or who have physical and or mental disability. And as I imagine many of our listeners will know, those who qualify for safeguarding or may otherwise be vulnerable is a much broader list than that. And so, in fact, commercial companies need to be alive to the fact that they need to safeguard not only users of their services, but also employees, others who may somehow be involved in the company's activities or coming in and visiting premises, etc. There are many ways in which individuals can be affected by the corporation's ongoing activities. And when we're talking about commercial entities, it's probably worth clarifying that we're not just talking here about the private providers of what we might think of as public services. So local authorities providing care or, for example, private hospitals. But it extends, as you've been saying in that helpful tea farm example, to the practices of companies providing goods and services and that we don't usually associate with the world of safeguarding. So as a result, what we have is a broad array of ways and procedures in which companies can be doing their bit to safeguard all those who are affected by their activities. That can range from vetting employees and contractors and making sure who you are dealing with and what risks they may or may not pose. It can be making informed and responsible ethical decisions about supply chains. That's particularly pertinent to the tea example. And I think what was interesting to me when you were giving us that example was the important qualification that many of those activities were locally run. And we have to understand, well, where does responsibility lie? I don't necessarily only mean legal, but it's understanding divisions of responsibility and lines of oversight. That's maybe something we'll pick back up on later. It can also include procedures for investigating allegations, whistleblowing policies, protected disclosures. But as you and I have discussed, in fact, there are some examples to be lauded of specific safeguarding policies where a company has sat down and thought about the many ways in which it wants to protect those that, that are affected by the company in one way or another. And so there's no one size fits all. What I would generally say is that as much as I'm lauding a specific safeguarding policy as the gold standard, I would qualify that by saying the substance is far more important than the label in effect. There's no point having a policy that you're not going to enforce and doesn't really mean much for those on the ground. No. And of course, the slightly odd situation with regard to private companies, of course, is that there is no legal obligation on them per se. There's nothing in a statute anywhere that says you have to have a safeguarding policy and it has to contain X, Y, and Z. There's not. There's nothing direct, but I would say that there's indirect ways in which that might be effectively a, a legal consideration for them. That could be contracts within a supply chain may stipulate, for example, the practices, procedures, policies that need to be in place for the two companies to do commercial business. Or alternatively, as I'm sure we'll come on to discuss, there are various forms of civil liability, which may be 
an alternative means by which commercial companies can be held liable for any failings in the safeguarding arena. So you mentioned before lines of oversight, and, and that to me seems to be part of the inherent work that a company is doing. It looks at supply chain, where are we getting things from? It looks at who is within that supply chain, who are we doing business with, who are they impacting upon? So in terms of lines of oversight, how do you think a company should start to map that and work with it? Well, first of all, I would also add to that list that realistically companies are looking at cost as well, and that's understandable. And that's one of the key tensions in this area. The desire to achieve a supply of whatever it may be at a reasonable and competitive cost, whilst also securing high standards of welfare, because that in itself does come at a cost. And so as a starting point, I think that companies may, and indeed consumers may, have to accept that in order to enable a company to be very thorough in its safeguarding and in its lines of oversight, that may incur more costs. Because although I've mentioned that it could be that a company specifies in its contract with another commercial entity that as part of the contract, it promises to ensure that all workers are vetted. In the UK, for example, we would be thinking about the DBS checks, disclosure and buying service checks, that might stipulate everyone working within the company will receive those DBS checks if in particular they are working with children or vulnerable adults. Now, when we're looking at international supply chains, like in the example you've mentioned, that may be more difficult because in fact, the local laws may not be set up in such a way as to put safeguarding first and foremost at the heart of the company's operations. And so it could be difficult to make equivalent contractual obligations beyond specifying local laws, local standards and whatnot. However, again, looking at a gold standard, there are some companies who either themselves or through specialist agencies and other companies who do this, will actually investigate on the ground the supply chain and they'll go out and they'll make visits and perhaps equivalent to an Ofsted visit. They'll go along and see, well, this is what you're telling us on paper, but is this how it looks in practice? And to my mind, that's real commitment to one supply chain. You know, do you actually know what is happening on the ground or are you just going from representations from a company that wants your business in effect? So almost like a safeguarding audit as part of the sort of wider commercial audit process. Absolutely. But why should safeguarding be any different to many of the other services that we audit? It's so important. And it's also an area where there's room for interpretation, understanding what different things require. Because as we said earlier, this is not black and white legal textbook area. It's effectively, what can we do to keep people safe? It's not spelled out and that needs to be considered by the facts of a company's operations. So I do think it's important to be looking at what is actually happening on the ground rather than in the abstract. One of the really interesting things I think is that there has been, a, there's definitely 100% been a growth of commercial entities starting to deploy their own safeguarding policies and to develop them. But like as you say, the vast majority of those companies, it strikes me, are those who are conducting public contracts. So they're maintaining buildings, they're providing services to people, and they're taking taxpayers' money to do that. And written into the contract is that they will have some form of safeguarding policy. And primarily, the reality of all of this, it seems to me, is that 
the vast majority of the time it's focused on having a system in respect of safer recruitment and a system in respect of responding to allegations. What you're talking about, which is much more interesting and I think much more advanced, is just the idea that we're taking safeguarding as a whole, applying it to the commercial process, applying it to the idea that we are going to develop something when we give someone this product, when we sell someone this product, something which we can effectively rely upon as a consumer to say, this has been produced in a way which hasn't exploited someone, which hasn't exposed someone to a risk of abuse. And that must be part of the future for safeguarding, I think. Well, I would certainly hope so. And we have seen some examples of that in the market. And indeed, consumers, society expects a certain amount of the manufacturer's products it purchases or the providers of the services that they purchase. Because what we do know is that many companies have, if not the gold standard of of a safeguarding comprehensive policy, safeguarding audits and whatnot, we do see that many companies are setting policies or they're setting out their approaches and their position on matters such as, for example, supply chains, social responsibility, climate change. Now, not all of those things are mandated by law, but there's a recognition that a good chunk of the market, the responsible consumer, if I can put it that way, expects that, demands that, and might very well vote with their feet if they don't see it. Or I say vote with their feet, it's probably vote with their clicks these days. But that's another point in terms of clicks in the internet. Lots of people now, you're not just going to a high street store irrespective of the size, you're shopping online. And it's very easy for consumers and responsible consumers to scroll to the bottom of the page, to go to the links that are about us, about our supply chains, and find out these policies and this information. And that open provision of information and transparency that the internet provides is probably another factor in this debate. Now, the other factor, and the reason really, in truth, why Skylet and I are here is because sometimes, unfortunately, things go wrong in respect of safeguarding. And I'm going to say from the outset, right here, right now, despite all of the good work that people do, and despite all of the preventative work that people do, sometimes things go wrong. And sometimes someone gets through the net, and sometimes things happen which ought not happen. We have to accept that. What we don't have to accept is that there's nothing that can be done in the future about those things that go wrong. And and what Scott and I have just been talking about is this idea about improving standards and about the fact that there is a commercial reality to all of this. And one of the commercial realities that people have to face is that when things go wrong, someone's going to come and knock on your door and ask you about it. In the terms of safeguarding adults, the two people who are primarily most likely to come and knock on your door and ask about it are either the local authority, if they're conducting a safeguarding adults inquiry under Section 42 of the Care Act, or alternatively, if it's that bad, it will be the police who are knocking your door and saying, what's gone on here? Now, all commercial entities ought to have a response in place for when something goes wrong. And I don't mean that from a PR perspective. I don't mean that purely from an employment law perspective. I mean that also from a safeguarding perspective. One of the strangest things that happens to me is that I get phone calls from firms of solicitors who are representing large commercial entities 
And what they find is something's gone wrong with their recruitment process. Someone they've recruited has been able to harm one of their customers or someone who's involved in the provision of a contract for them. And as a result of that, people are coming back to that commercial organization and they're saying, well, what lessons have you learned? How are you going to stop this from happening again? The first problem is that there is rarely someone within the organization with a specific brief to deal with this. It quite often goes to in-house counsel who will say, got to be entirely honest, I don't know anything about safeguarding. The other person it sometimes goes to is HR. And HR are great at dealing with the side of things when it comes to responding to somebody who has breached their terms and contract in respect to their employment. They're good at that. That's their bread and butter. What's difficult, though, is when people have to start running their own internal investigation from an employment law perspective, have an external investigation or an external inquiry going on from a safeguarding perspective, and how the two things marry up. And that's really important, not only in terms of making sure that you're avoiding the risk of harm in the future, but also making sure you're not damaging any potential police investigation, but also that in terms of any harm already caused to a person, that's somehow not being made worse by the processes that you're doing, that you're not re-traumatising someone who's been exposed to abuse. And so when I get these phone calls, often what happens is a company will learn from the experience and then they will build a safeguarding policy. But the most concerning case is those where there's been a pattern of sort of low-level concerns over a period of time and nobody's acted upon them. And what those cases show is a systemic failure has happened within the company, not because anybody's trying to necessarily cover up what's going on, but nobody's had the function to triangulate all the data together and identify the trend and the problem. And so that's why policies and systems are so important. But it's also important too, isn't it, Scarlett, in terms of civil liability potentially? Yes, Ian. Well, a policy will certainly be something that's looked at in terms of civil liability. But civil liability is obviously a very broad field and it, it depends what we're looking at. To my mind, there are three main sources of liability that a commercial entity should be thinking about on this topic. They're not the only ones, but I think they're the main ones that would come up when we're talking about failings of these sorts. And it's probably really worth mentioning that civil liability, unlike, for example, any form of public inquiry or indeed an inquest, as you'll be familiar with, doesn't have at its heart the concept of learning lessons. This is about effectively establishing fault or blame or seeking financial compensation. And so there's sometimes a tension between the issues that you were just identifying in terms of protecting yourself and your processes, but actually learning lessons and implementing change. And sometimes the instigation of civil liability can hinder the latter because it takes over. And indeed, sometimes, although it's not necessarily the best submission in law, it can be said, well, look, you've made changes. So you must effectively be admitting that your system before was defective. When, of course, that might not be the case. You might think that your system was fair and reasonable at the time, but that being a responsible employer, organisation, whatever it may be in the circumstance, 
you want to learn lessons and constantly improve. That doesn't necessarily mean to say what you've done in the past is wrong. So it's not necessarily a black or white picture when it comes to policies, but they're definitely relevant. I said earlier, there are three main sources of liability and I've kept everyone on their tenterhooks waiting. So to my mind, they are negligence, vicarious liability and contractual liability. And the latter in itself might raise issues of employment law, which is possibly a fourth or a subset. Because of my specialty, I'm going to focus on the tortious liability that a company might incur. And so first of all, this negligence, we hear that word a lot. Well, you and I certainly do as lawyers, but even lay people, the term is used very frequently. And many people actually don't take the time to understand what the constituent elements of the claim in negligence are. So for any claim in negligence to be established in this arena, first of all, you'd require a duty of care to be established. Now, that's largely a a fact-specific inquiry, but there are some general rules of thumb. So for example, you're going to have a duty of care to your employees, or if you have assumed responsibility for the health and well-being of someone by taking them into your care or providing care services. So there are some general rule of thumbs, but there has to be a degree of proximity or a, a nexus. It's not sufficient to owe effectively the world at large a duty of care. So that's a limiting factor in the first instance. Then if when the duty of care is owed, if in performing your role or your functions, you fail to take reasonable care towards that person in respect of whom you have a duty, then there will be a breach of that duty and liability and negligence will follow if that breach causes damage and it meets the requirements of remoteness, restrictions, etc. So typically in the safeguarding context, in a number of the cases that I do, you're looking at damages for sexual abuse or assault, for injuries, for the development or indeed exacerbation of a mental health condition. And that can have any number of consequences. It might impact somebody's career in the short or long term. It may give rise to new or additional health or care needs. And those can have significant financial implications for individuals and their families. And so all of that can be at large in a negligence claim. So there's a real exposure there if you don't get this right. So if you do owe a duty to someone, potentially the liability can be quite broad then. It can be. I mean, as always, there's some caveats on the bottom of the tin in tiny writing. And effectively, the, the losses need to be reasonably foreseeable and not too remote. So it's not a case of claiming everything that flows in fact, that there will be some restriction by reference to what the duty of care encompasses. But absolutely, a tortious duty is founded on the principle of compensation. So in principle, we are looking at what has happened to that individual and how does the law put that right, which, as you say, can be broad. So in terms of one of the things that tends to concern my commercial clients, at least, this concept of vicarious liability in safeguarding, how does that work? So vicarious liability is slightly different in that the situation that I was just describing, that's where a company, typically acting, of course, through individuals, has been negligent in its own acts or actions or sometimes omissions. So as an example, if a company chooses having, let's say, implemented a gold standard safeguarding policy in five to 10 years' time, it may decide well, actually, we hardly ever have these issues. Let's get rid of our safeguarding policy. Or we say we have our vetting procedures in place, 
let's just not renew the contract for seeking DBS checks, something like that. Something where the issue or the action is that of the companies unequivocally, albeit acting through individuals. Now, vicarious liability is slightly different. This arises where the company is effectively held liable through a fiction and it's treated as if the acts of an individual within the company's control, that's typically going to be an employee, but not necessarily an employee, are the acts of the company. The law effectively creates that legal fiction. And the premise of that source of liability is in effect that that element of control is sufficient by reference to various policy reasons to justify the defendant with bigger pockets compensating the victim of any tort. And so to give another example, vicarious liability might arise where someone has abused, unfortunately, a vulnerable adult within the context of that company's operations. Notwithstanding, that's not an act of the company. That's not something the company asks, instructs, approved in any way. In fact, often there may be extensive policies, etc., prohibiting such conduct. But the vicarious liability is concerned with asking whether and why a company should nonetheless be liable. Now, the law in respect of vicarious liability has been in a state of flux in recent years. There's certainly a great deal of appellate case law on the topic. And if anyone was going to venture reading it, I'd recommend taking an afternoon some ethically sourced tea and a cold towel. But put broadly, a court will be asking itself whether there is a sufficiently close connection between the tortious action by the individual, so the example we said was any abuse or neglect, and the relationship of employment or relationship akin to employment. So that's going to involve a consideration not only of control, which was certainly one of the more historical key factors in determining vicarious liability, but also looking at and considering the individual employees' functional field of activities. So so really, we're considering factors such as where did any abuse occur? How did the employee come into contact with that individual? What was the connection with the day-to-day activities, both of this individual and the company more broadly? And so, again, it's a very fact-heavy or fact-sensitive area but one can see instantly that there might be differences between, for example, individuals who are providing care services on the ground and those who are more physically remote. So let's say in a completely different building somewhere. So I'm afraid I can't give a sort of litmus test, but those are the kind of things that the companies who are concerned with this issue need to be taking into account. But inevitably, it's hard to predict with any great certainty what a court would find unless you get into the facts of any particular case. And then your third point was about contractual liability. Now, I've seen contracts, especially in the public sector, where a public sector body has employed a private company to perform a function and contained within that is a contractual obligation effectively to implement at least vetting or at least safer recruitment. I wonder also if we're now going to start seeing contractual liability potentially in respect of having those safeguarding policies and issues in place as well. What do you think about that? Well, certainly some contracts contain contractual obligations in respect of policies. And indeed, the policies can be incorporated as a term 
of the contract. So translating that across to supply chains, you can see that, for example, as part of a tender process, it may have been said, well, well, look, we've got this safeguarding policy. This is what we do. And there could then be a contractual obligation in respect of that. Now, I have to say, I immediately think of what the ramifications would be of any breach of that contract, because you'd be looking at the loss or damage sustained by the company who has used that other company's services. So it's not necessarily something on which individuals who are harmed on the ground can rely on. So that might be almost a secondary consideration to the contractual liability, perhaps by way of warranties or indemnities, etc. That's more of a company to company issue. Interesting. So I think in and amongst all of that, Scarlett, what we produce for companies is a picture that things are changing, that they have to be concerned in respect of their safeguarding processes, not only from a reputational perspective, not only from the perspective of keeping themselves and keeping their staff and their customers safe, but also from the perspective that they may be subject to investigations and they may be subject potentially to civil or even contractual claims in respect of safeguarding. So I'm going to put you on the spot now. What about the future? What do you think about the future in this area? Well, I'm going to riff off what you've just said, Ian, and say that things are changing. There's a direction of travel. In my view, there's starting with a legal perspective. I don't think there's going to be any sort of backtracking or downgrading on the part of the law. I think, if anything, there's, there's going to be amplification or, or re-emphasis upon a company's obligations. And we have to see where the common law system takes us. But each time we're building on previously established liability, and I can only see that snowballing and gathering momentum, as it were. But as we touched on earlier, I also think that the non-legal side of things is almost as of equal importance. And looking at societal expectations and practice, what do we as consumers demand? What questions do we ask? And what information do we require before we make our purchases? The certification and authentication, I think, of supply chains and ingredients could be a big area in the future, effectively having some, whether it be a a symbol on a product or the traffic light system that we currently see in respect to nutrition, something that is easy for consumers to understand about where things come from and the impact of that in any number of senses. So going back to the question right at the start of this episode, is safeguarding a commercial concern the answer must be a, a resounding yes. Absolutely. It's everyone's business. It is everyone's business. Do you know, it was a snappy title I thought up all those months ago. Really glad to be back. Really glad to be talking to Scarlett today. And thank you very much for joining us, Scarlett. You have got now, alongside last year's episodes, you have got a whole slew of new episodes this week for Adult Safeguarding Week. I hope you'll listen to them all in your own time as things go on. You can follow Scarlett on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter, now known as X, at ScarlettM underscore 39. You can follow the podcast at Safe underscore Cast. And you can follow 39 Essex Chambers at 39 Essex. Thank you again for listening. And as we've just said, perhaps a little bit cheesily, but very much, especially in the context of this episode, safeguarding is most definitely everybody's business. Thanks for listening. 
Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com. Thank you.